When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The city in the world was Asia? (laughs) When plainly it's Europe. (laughs) This country simply has no education standards anymore. They will let you out of a public high school and give you a diploma, and you don't have to actually know anything, which used to be the mission of schools, knowing things. I know it's super important to stop the grooming of our kids, or I don't know, to start it, and and certainly critical race theory must be stricken from the curriculum, or who knows, maybe included in all of it. But, you know, while we're having those fights, could someone please notice that the kids don't actually know anything? Good morning. It's Tuesday, Ayn Rand Tuesday, October the 10th, and this is The True Conservative. Welcome to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today. So today, after the serenity prayer and the patriotic song of the day, we will have Rhino Ryan, The S Word, Hostages, My Take, Rules for Retrogrades, Rules for Patriots, The Rape of the Mind, No Free Lunch, Ayn Rand quote of the day, Bishop Barron, and the latest from Ayn Rand's book, Philosophy, Who Needs It? All that and more when I get back. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen.
Thank you, thank you. And now there's no free lunch, 250 Economic Truths by David Bonson. Now, legal plunder can be committed in an infinite number of ways. Thus, we have an infinite number of plans for organizing it. Tariffs, protection, benefits, subsidies, encouragements, progressive taxation, public schools, guaranteed jobs, guaranteed profits, minimum wages, a right to relief, a right to the tools of labor, free credit, and so on and so on. Friedrich Bastiat. All tools available to the crony capitalist and her accomplice, the politician, have one thing in common, the thumb of government on the scale of markets. That some tools are more subtle than others does not change the fact that such interventions are corrupt when they seek to show favoritism to one economic actor over another. Legal plunder indeed. And that was There's No Free Lunch by David Bonson. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, the rate of the mind. Chapter 14. The Turncoat in Each of Us. The confusing influence of the problem of treason and loyalty. As soon as treason is mentioned, something in man's soul is stirred. Anger and scorn, suspicion and anxiety are aroused, and people want to avoid the subject. The social reaction toward a traitor even before we are certain that the accusation is deserved, is very spectacular. Former friends of a man accused as a traitor retreat and withdraw from this token of evil. In every trial of traitors, we feel inwardly, personally accused and guilty. This is one of the reasons that treason trials make such a deep impression and provoke the most confusing discussions. Dictators can use such trials to cast a spell on the public. In a book on mental coercion and the rape of the mind, an investigation of the problem of treason and loyalty is needed. And that was the confusion of the um, in, confusing influence of treason and loyalty from The Rape of the Mind by Juice Mirlo, MD. Back in a minute.
Thank you, thank you. And now, rules for retrogrades. 40 tactics to defeat the radical left. Rule 33. Stop heralding unwelcome news of progressive victories by wishfully proclaiming, channeling Japan's Admiral Yamamoto circa Pearl Harbor Day, that radicals have awakened a sleeping giant. The platitude is beyond being banal and naive. It's triumphalistic in the most tone-deaf way, and therefore it must be anathema to the retrograde if we are to see our worldview win the day. Yet in the face of shameless leftist mischief, the reimagining of the American health care system through the Affordable Care Act, the attempted coup against Donald Trump by nefarious deep state actors, the attempt to usher in Catholic women priestesses in the Amazon Synod, etc., we have heard ad nauseum that certainly the latest bits of news from the front will finally push passive observers over the edge, awakening in them a fighting spirit sufficient to spur them to rise up en masse and finally vanquish our ideological foes, restoring common sense and decency to the public arena. Horse feathers. Countenance the fact that most men don't have fighting spirits, or at least have dulled them with lives of vice and indulgence, and of the few that do, most need their dormant fighting spirits to be invigorated by an even smaller strata of strong men with vision. It is an illusion of the most dangerous sort to believe that coming eye to eye with an injustice, men will naturally rise up and take the necessary actions to set the world aright again, the retrograde should constantly and soberly remind himself that the fallen human condition is such that feeble men, on the whole, will adapt to and even embrace even the most perverse and unpalatable regimes, so long as they have ample entertainment, cake, and carnal pleasures. Billions of people have endured, many with smiles, severe repression at the hands of tyrannical states like Red China, North Korea, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and Germany's Third Reich. These regimes have denied people fundamental freedoms such as familial integrity, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion, strictures far beyond those fathomable to the fatted Western mind. And yet, despite the Spartan conditions and dystopian laws of such states, political dissension was or is underwhelming, even moribund. Never underestimate man's ability to abide an evil to which he has become accustomed. The uninspired man eventually accepts his lot and resigns himself to suffering it rather than risking his few creature comforts and perhaps even his life and liberty in favor of justice, intangible as it is. Only the unworldly and noble man can risk tangibles for ideals. Like in the film High Noon, Complacent men, who are sadly the vast majority of the race, will make every excuse to avoid the inconvenience and risk that accompanies the defiance that is part and parcel of being a retrograde. Thus, that sleeping giant so giddily touted by armchair activists is often no more than a paper tiger. Moreover, to many, the sleeping giant metaphor represents a groundless assurance that goodness will ultimately win the ongoing cultural and political wars. 
despite a seemingly endless succession of radical triumphs and battles which forebode just the opposite. Hence, the metaphor is false catharsis, a dishonest emotional pacifier for those who need to self-soothe in the wake of bad news. It is a failure to come to terms with objective reality. Such a failure to grasp the current state of the world is a roadblock for the retrograde agenda. In order to fight the wiles and schemes of radicals, we need people to get mad and to stay mad, mad enough that they're willing to spend their energy and treasure on the raging culture wars. When the cockeyed optimist assures his fellow men that all is well, that indeed a sleeping giant of dedicated retrogrades will invariably arise to win the culture wars, despite losing battles with alarming frequency, he squelches their righteous anger. After all, if all is well, then there is no need for mobilization going forward. Blind optimism disincentivizes necessary and fruitful engagement by retrogrades because it prematurely claims victory solely on the basis that people notice and object to the acts of radicals. Thus, the rank sentimentalist who suggests that goodness is somehow destined to prevail in the temporal struggle should be the object of the retrograde's scorn. Such a man has yet to wrap his mind around theodicy and the mystery of iniquity. The sleeping giant metaphor lulls would-be agitators into an undue passivity since it wrongly assumes that wheels are in motion that will culminate in the undoing of radicals' misdeeds. It essentially conflates people's initial reflexive outrage over perceived injustices with organized and efficacious political engagement. It assumes that because people are angry, they will direct their anger into the proper channels by which change may be affected. This is akin to confusing potential energy with kinetic energy. The fact that a political or cultural injustice wrought by radicals irks the consciences of the masses is a mere starting point. It's an aggregation of potential energy. But in order to do any good, this potential energy needs to be actualized and released through political organization and transformed into political movement whether in speech, demonstrations, volunteerism, or capital donation. If initial outrage is never actualized into political movement, then it evaporates with the oscillations of the human mind, or slowly dies out, like a fire having burnt through all its fuel. So, the rousing of people's passions in response to an injustice should not be received as a victory in and of itself, Rather, it should be viewed as a starting point by which, through methodically directed political engagement, true victory can one day be achieved. And since the sleeping giant metaphor undercuts efficacious political engagement, snuffing it out while it's still in inchoate form, the metaphor is to be removed from the retrograde's vocabulary. And that was uh, Rule 33 from Rules for Retrograde. That was, again, Rule 33 from Rules for Retrogrades, 40 Tactics to Defeat the Radical Left by Timothy and David Gordon. Back in a minute.
Thank you, thank you. Now, rules for patriots. Many pro-lifers were touting a 2012 Gallup poll that said a majority of Americans consider themselves pro-life. However, the devil in that poll was truly found in the details. Only 20% of Americans believed in upholding do not murder by making child killing via abortion illegal in all circumstances. Might I suggest that if only 20% of Americans are willing to enforce the commandment do not murder, then there's no way 51% of the American people are pro-life because then they don't know what pro-life truly is. They might be proer life than they used to be, or they might think child killing on demand is icky, but they're not pro-life. Suppose a majority of folks in your neighborhood told you they were against anyone murdering you, but at the same time, only 20% of them were willing to make murdering you illegal regardless of the circumstances. How safe would you feel in that neighborhood? Likewise, about the most dangerous place for an American baby nowadays is tragically inside his mother's womb. We in the pro-life movement are at least somewhat at fault for this. For we have been surrendering the moral high ground on this travesty for decades. A 2013 article in Time magazine did about the best and most honest job of covering the current divide within the pro-life movement I have seen yet. The schism comes down to two questions. Is all life sacred and worthy of protection? And what is the strategy to ultimately end the tragedy of child killing in America? The fact that following the 40th anniversary year of Roe versus Wade, we still aren't of one mind on the two most important questions of our movement is exactly why the killing continues. Time points out that there are some claiming to be pro-life that either don't believe all life is sacred and worthy of protection and or have no strategy to ultimately end the slaughter of over 50 million children in America the past 40 years. At the heart of this debate is an emerging group within the pro-life movement called Personhood USA whom I partnered with to put forth a pledge signed by almost every 2012 Republican presidential candidate. Despite the massive influence and size of the pro-life voting bloc within the Republican Party for decades, our pledge was sadly the first to demand potential Republican Party standard bearers actually uphold the standard that makes us pro-lifers. The personhood movement actually has a plan to end child killing in America once and for all. In fact, it's the only workable plan that I know of. That plan is to establish by law that a person is a person at the moment of biological beginning under the 5th and 14th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, which say, quote, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Isn't this what you believe if you're pro-life? Personhood USA also believes in the God-given right to life and that all persons are created in the image of God. Again, isn't this what you believe if you're pro-life? The reason Personhood USA's plan is workable is because it comes right from the original Roe v. Wade hearing itself. During the hearing, several Supreme Court justices acknowledged that if it could be established the human fetus is a person under the Constitution, the child-killing industry would have an almost impossible case to make. To which the attorney advocating child killing before the U.S. Supreme Court responded, quote, I would have a very difficult case. It doesn't get any more practical than using your enemy's acknowledged weakness against them. You're probably wondering why this is so controversial for some within the pro-life movement. After all, isn't this what we claim to believe? As someone that has been involved in these debates within the movement at a high level, I have never gotten a good answer from my pro-life brethren who oppose this. But don't just take my word for it. 
Look at what they told Time magazine. The legislative director for Wisconsin Right to Life told Time she was, quote, done talking about the personhood amendment that was currently underway in her state. She went on to say, quote, this particular measure might sound good from a pro-life perspective, but it's not going to save one single life. So apparently following the very blueprint the Supreme Court gave us to defend Roe v. Wade in the actual hearing won't save a single life. Establishing by law that a person is a person at the moment of biological beginning, using language right out of the U.S. Constitution, won't save a single life. I fail to understand that logic. Maybe one of you listening to this book can educate me. Is there an explanation for this? You know, I've tried to get answers. I even went directly to the head of my National Right to Life chapter in my home state of Iowa. My pastor served on her board of directors at the time. And even then, she couldn't give me a single good reason why they still have never helped us with establishing personhood in our state legislature. I still have the emails from those exchanges. Her lack of good answers is one reason why my pastor no longer serves on the board of Iowa Right to Life. This lack of push for personhood from some notable sectors of the pro-life movement is one of the major reasons why personhood initiatives have failed in several states so far. Of course, abolition of slavery failed at first several times as well, but ultimately succeeded by never surrendering the moral high ground. Personhood USA hopes to emulate that historical success. If my fellow pro-lifers don't believe personhood is the right strategy to ultimately end child killing in America... And what is theirs? If the strategy is we just wait for Roe versus Wade to be overturned, well, don't we need an offensive initiative to force that question before the court? Isn't the question of who is or isn't a person that very offensive initiative? It seems to me the only argument we have against abortion is that we're killing persons. Elsewhere, we agree with arguments that say government has no role in telling you what to do with your own body or conscience. Don't we oppose things like Obamacare mandates on similar grounds? The only reason we don't accept that language in the case of abortion is it's not your body, but rather somebody else's. If it's not a person, there's no reason to oppose abortion. Therefore, it would only seem logical to me that's the debate we want to have. In 2013, the Media Research Center visited a college campus to get students to sign a petition in favor of, get this, fourth trimester abortions. Their lack of critical thinking displayed by the fact they didn't recognize the self-refuting logic of the petition itself, for there can never be a fourth trimester of anything. Several students bought all the same pro-child killing talking points for killing already born babies, and they were willing to say so on camera. It seems to me that if folks aren't even aware of when pregnancy ends, they sure don't know when life begins. And if folks don't know when life begins... They don't know when they're obligated to protect life. Or as President Obama once flippantly told Pastor Rick Warren when he asked him the question when life begins, quote, that's above my pay grade. But while some notable sectors of the pro-life movement refuse to sign on, personhood is gaining ground in Washington, D.C. of all places. Time says former Republican vice presidential candidate Paul Ryan has introduced a personhood bill that has 38 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. And Senator Rand Paul has introduced similar legislation in the U.S. Senate. Potential 2016 GOP presidential candidates Marco Rubio and Scott Walker are also supporters of personhood, according to Time. Yet despite that momentum, Time says, quote, mainstream anti-abortion groups like Americans United for Life and Susan B. Anthony List have distanced themselves from the personhood movement.
So instead of defending life at conception without exceptions, what are they doing instead? Get this, Time says they are, quote, adopting the rhetoric of women's health used by their pro-choice counterparts so that they can target the 52% of Americans who think abortion should be legal in some but not all cases. In other words, according to Time, neither Americans United for Life nor Susan B. Anthony List is actively standing for the God-given right to life. Just because you're anti-abortion doesn't mean you're pro-life. Fellow pro-lifer, did you get into this fight so that child killing would be legal in some but not all cases? Do you think there is ever a good reason to kill an innocent child? Do you think we should ever execute children for the crimes of their parents? If you believe all of us are made in the image of God, does that same God ever provide exceptions for the shedding of innocent blood? Well... The head of Americans United for Life tells Time that she doesn't believe as you do. She says, quote, the pro-life movement is not one size fits all. We're the ones occupying the middle ground. It would seem to me asserting the God-given right to life is one size fits all. For either you have a right to life or you don't. It's not as if only two thirds or shall we say three fifths of a person can be alive and the rest dead. Furthermore, what is the middle ground of a dead innocent child? Since we've killed more than 50 million children in the past 40 years, is the middle ground killing only 25 million? So if we only killed 25 million, would killing children be any less evil? What if we only killed 1 million? Can you find the middle ground with those who chant Hail Satan and throw feces and tampons to defend their bloodlust, like we saw at the Texas State Legislature in 2013? The child-killing industry understands there is no middle ground. You're either for killing children or you're not. This is why they fight so vehemently against even common sense restrictions to prevent more Kermit Gosnells. They understand the antidote to their plague on our land is establishing the personhood of every American from the moment of biological beginning without exceptions. Quote, the bottom line is that Personhood USA is trying to end all abortion once and for all, says the litigation director for the Center for Reproductive Rights to Time. And she's exactly right. That is what we're trying to do. Isn't that what you're trying to do? Fellow pro-lifer, don't you want to end child killing once and for all? Are you giving your time, talent, and treasure to a group that shares your convictions? Meanwhile, the killing continues. This is why I'm a strong supporter of groups like Personhood USA. The personhood movement is based on four things. Number one, the belief that all life comes from God and thus is sacred from the moment of conception with no exceptions. Therefore, a person is defined as such from biological beginning to natural death. Number two, the highest law is the law of nature and nature's God, and that law commands do not murder. Therefore, any edicts or decrees from any human authority, including the Supreme Court, that contradicts the highest law are unjust and should be challenged to the point of civil disobedience if necessary. Number three, the fifth and 14th amendments to the U.S. Constitution say no person shall be denied life or property without due process of law. Since unborn children are persons and have not been given due process, then the government has a moral obligation to protect their inalienable right to life as it would any other person. Number four, Personhood is referred to in the Roe v. Wade opinion itself. When Justice Harry Blackman writes, quote, If this suggestion of personhood is established, the appellant's case, of course, collapses, for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the Fifth Amendment. 
The prenatal technology we have available today is light years more advanced than what was available in 1973 at the time of Roe versus Wade. If you have ever seen your own child in utero via modern prenatal technology, then you know that is not an unviable tissue mass you are looking at. You're looking at your own baby. Personhood is the principle and proper expression of the sanctity of life because it retakes the moral high ground. Instead of debating with one another how many we're willing to continue to kill, it forces the opposition to define why it doesn't believe all life should be allowed to live. Instead of attacking the practice of killing children, it attacks the premise of it. The civil rights movement correctly believed that inequality for some meant inequality for all. The pro-life movement will not experience victory until it draws the same line in the sand. And it has, as its predecessor, the abolitionist movement to look to as an example. Originally, there were attempts to regulate slavery incrementally in an effort to both isolate it and then prohibit it from expanding. After decades of failure, though, the anti-slavery movement came to the conclusion that it was abolition or nothing. As renowned 19th century abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison put it, enslave the liberty of but one man and the liberties of the world are put into peril. Now that is capturing the moral high ground. And that is how you prevail in a moral cause. Whether it's the sanctity of life, the definition of marriage, the rule of law, or the integrity of our currency and banking system, these issues are all moral enterprises. There can be no compromise when it comes to moral enterprises. For compromise is defeat. How do you compromise on moral enterprises such as life anyway? Is the baby less dead? From the Puritans to the Patriots, this republic was founded by those who refused to surrender the moral high ground. And it will only be preserved if we resolve to do the same. And that was uh, the finish of Chapter 7 of Rules for Patriots, How Conservatives Can Win Again by Steve Deese. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, Bishop Robert Barron. Let's face it, we are all haunted by death. So no matter what you accomplish in your life, no matter how much you've achieved, you know, what you've managed to, to produce or whatever, we all know that it's going to be swallowed up in our own death. And that's led some philosophers and others to say, well, what's the point? You know, life is just absurd, isn't it? Death has the final say. I will open your graves and have you rise from them. Here's the God of Israel now speaking to us. This is the God of the Bible, the true God, who does not think 
think that death has the final say, who announces his purpose clearly to open our graves and have us rise from them. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. He wants to breathe life into us to revive these dry bones. No matter how final we think death is, God is more powerful. Let's face it, we are all... And that was Bishop Robert Barron, back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now the Ayn Rand quote of the day. Quote, If nuclear weapons are a dreadful threat and mankind cannot afford war any longer, then mankind cannot afford statism any longer. Let no man of good will take it upon his conscience to advocate the rule of force outside or inside his own country. Let all those who are actually concerned with peace, those who do love man and do care about his survival, Realize that if war is ever to be outlawed, it is the use of force that has to be outlawed. Unquote. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I was listening to a little bit of uh, Hugh Hewitt this morning, but uh, he just made, basically made me want to vomit. All, you know, for-profit trying to make his profit off of the, the misery of uh, the Israelis, and it really makes me want to barf. So I switch over to um, Squawk Box, and Squawk Box is interviewing the former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, king of the rhinos. And, of course, they're asking his, his opinion about all the, uh, the goings-on in Congress, like it's anybody's business. That's one of the things I want to make clear, by the way. What's going on in Congress in terms of who they're going to elect as a speaker is none of my business. It's none of your business. The only people whose business it is is the people in Congress. We had our vote. We went out on a Tuesday, we voted, and we ended up with a slim majority, uh, Republican majority in the House of Representatives. We're done until 2024. Okay, this is going to be up to, and that's what these these uh, people in Congress on the Capitol Hill that keep getting interviewed about, well, who, what's going on and who does what, you, you need to, to shut these folks down and say, it's none of your business. It's none of your business who we're going to vote for. It's none of your business who I support. You just have to wait and see. So um, that's one of them. The other thing is with, I was thinking about Ryan and what it is that is the essence of being a rhino and the essence of being a rhino and what it makes rhinos so disgusting is that rhinos are the people that tell you you can do one of two things. You can either win or you can have your values, but you can't do both at the same time. They're basically saying the ends justify the means, might makes right. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Now, Having said that, the sort of corollary to that is just because I'm a conservative doesn't mean I have to hang a kick me sign on my back. Uh, Matt Gates has taken a lot of crap for uh, hanging the speaker out to dry, so to speak. Actually, it should be the Democrats because they're the ones uh, he got the bulk of his support from the Democrat Party. Uh, it was not like it was close and his vote was the uh, the decider. No. Uh, anyways, if Matt Getz had played his cards right, 
he enjoys what the left understands, the Democrats understand as plausible deniability. Uh, the same thing I've said about Lauren Boebert and Miss um, uh, Taylor Green, who come out and they they hang kick me signs on themselves by saying, "Oh, I'm uh, I'm going to vote down this bill, this continuing resolution, and if there is a uh, a shutdown in the government, well, so be it." Well, they're playing by the left's rules. They don't have to play by the left's rules. They're turning themselves. Uh, if they're lucky, they'll get turned into martyrs. But more than likely, they're just going to end up taking a lot of abuse, a lot of unnecessary abuse. Uh, that's bad for them, and it's bad for their supporters. So, like I said, with uh, Lauren Boebert, for instance, and she wants to come out, she wants certain things in a particular bill in terms of continuing resolution, and before she's going to vote for it, she should say, when Sp- Speaker McCarthy was there, hey, everything's okay, I'm going to vote for it because Speaker McCarthy's people have assured me that there's going to be no funding for Ukraine and that there's going to be added funding for the border. That's all she has to do. Plausible. It's, it's, it's a beautiful strategy. Okay? And anybody comes and asks her who said that, you say, I can't tell you, it's confidential. Right? So um, now all the pressure is on McCarthy. All the news people are going to go to McCarthy. Hey, how come? What's up? And he's got a lot of awkward questions to answer. Now, if, assuming that McCarthy puts across a bill or puts a bill up for a vote that's unacceptable to, to Lauren Boebert, she simply votes no. And then she goes out and holds a press conference and says, I'm so disappointed. I was promised that there would be no funding for Ukraine. I was promised that there would be border security money. And somebody lied to me. So I had to vote no. So now you're covered. You get to maintain your values and you don't have to get, and you don't have to be the subject. And also when you're a representative and you're putting yourself up uh, as a an object of ridicule and whatnot, you're also putting your supporters in that same position. You don't want to do that. And you don't have to. Think about it. Back in a minute.
Thank you, thank you. So now on Stuart Varney, he's um, talking with a correspondent. I believe the correspondent is actually on the ground in Israel, but this is really important, the way that the correspondent correctly handles Stuart Varney's question. To hear what you expect to hear from the president at 1 p.m. Eastern today. Listen, I I don't know what we're going to get from Joe Biden. Hell, I don't even know if his staff knows what what he's going to say. But I know what we should hear from the president. We should hear that he's going to stand with our most trusted ally. I would love to hear him talk about this weapons route between Tehran and Beirut and what he's going to do with our armed forces to stop that from happening. I would love for him to address this envoy that he appointed um, that was funneling money uh, to Iran, uh, the, the, our nation's uh, biggest enemy right now because they're the state's number one sponsor of terrorism. So there's a lot that I want to hear from Joe Biden. It looks like he decided to call a lid early on in, in the day yesterday. Hopefully we get something of substance from the commander-in-chief. Okay, so there you go. He handled absolutely correctly. Stuart Barney asked him to make predictions, and the problem with predictions is it takes the pressure off. If you're trying to put pressure on Joe Biden, you're not going to do it by saying, I predict Joe Biden will say this, or I predict he will wear a blue tie. There's no pressure in that. The word should, the S word, puts pressure on uh, particularly politicians, but it puts pressure on everybody. So the correspondent went ahead and rightly said, I don't know what he's going to say. I, I can't make a prediction, but I'll tell you what he should say. He also what he said what he wanted him to say and what he hoped. So those are all three excellent ways of putting the pressure on uh, this, in this particular case, Joe Biden, but on any particular politician or any any rank and file um, uh, Democrat, uh, whoever it is you happen to be talking to, let's say somebody at work, one of your uh, socialist buddies at work, and you want to put the pressure on them, use the the S word. This is what should happen. This is what I want to happen. This is what I hope happens much better. Back in a minute. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, one um, observation about uh, a big mistake that Israel has made in this war, and that is acknowledging hostages. The reason that Hamas not only takes hostages, but makes it known, they, they, they do whatever they can to spread it out in the media that they've taken hostages, is so that they can control the process. And uh, if you're fighting a bigger opponent, it's to your advantage to take as many of your opponent's weapons off the battlefield, right? So if the, the Israelis acknowledge that Hamas has taken hostages, then uh, then the um, Israeli defense forces have to be more circumspect. They have to be more careful in what they do and how they do it. Because if they don't, and they've acknowledged that Hamas has hostages, and the Israeli defense forces go in and just start shooting the place up, who who becomes the savage? IDF, of course. So, again, once Israel acknowledged that Hamas um, has taken hostages, now Hamas controls the narrative, how this is going to end. 
and it's probably going to end in some kind of a negotiated settlement so that Hamas can do this again and again and again. And I know this because I used to see it when we had the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was willing to devote a lot more resources to Hamas and whatnot. So you'd see these types of uh, battles and whatnot on a more regular basis. Uh, I don't think Iran has uh, the wherewithal to um, be able to uh, keep Hamas in rockets for very long. So, But the point is, again, never concede. Never concede. Stop and consider that. that when, once you've conceded something, you're screwed. You're screwed. Now, Israel can't now come back and say, oh, wait, we changed your mind. There are no hostages. Once you've acknowledged the hostages, now you let Hamas um, control everything, control the whole process. Uh, may, may end up controlling how this war ends. And it may end up being very, very disappointing for Israelis and their supporters. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, Stuart Varney's My Take. That's Israel. That's the markets. Now this. When terrorists launched their attack Saturday morning, Israel occupied the moral high ground. It was an unprovoked attack. Innocent civilians were brutalized. Videos of atrocities quickly circulated online. Israelis were clearly the victims. The terrorists and their supporters are now presenting themselves as victims. They speak the language of victimhood, the language of oppression. That's how they justify their own savagery. 31 student groups at Harvard put out a statement blaming Israel. Quote, Palestinians have been forced to live in a state of death, both slow and sudden, they write. In cities around the world, crowds of Palestinians and their supporters demand recognition of their oppressed status. They're trying to change the narrative. CNN put out this headline, nowhere to go. Ordinary Palestinians live in fear as Israel retaliates against Hamas. So you see, it's now Hamas as the victim of Israeli retaliation. Katie McFarlane made the point on our show yesterday. Roll tape. What I worry about is that as public opinion shifts and change, and it will, because the pictures you're going to start seeing are going to be what's happening in Gaza. The Palestinians are really good at spinning it to look like the victims. Hamas may get favorable media treatment. The left has never been comfortable with winners like Israel. But one thing will not change. Israelis are enraged. They're not buying Hamas victimhood. They're going to destroy them. The battle for public opinion is about to heat up. And uh, so that was uh, Stuart Varney's My Take. And again, uh, my thing on this, for, first of all, the, the other thing I want to make sure that I say is that as far as, because you're going to get people that are going to say, what do you think about the, what the Israelis are doing? Our opinion don't, doesn't count. The left wants you to believe, and it's very tempting to believe, that everything is a matter of opinion. All opinions count and are equal except as to popularity. And it's just not true. My opinion doesn't count in Israel. The IDF doesn't listen to me. Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't listen to me. Hamas doesn't listen to me. Nobody listens to me. My opinion doesn't count. I'm just not going to bother wasting my time um, as a social exercise um, explaining a moot opinion. And uh, neither should you. Back in a minute.
Thank you, thank you. And now, Ayn Rand's, a uh, little something from Ayn Rand's book, Philosophy, Who Needs It? In view of the omnipotence ascribed to this agent throughout the book, a definition would have been very helpful. But here is all we get. When a bit of behavior is followed by a certain kind of consequence, it is more likely to occur again. And a consequence having this effect is called a reinforcer. Food, for example, is a reinforcer to a hungry organism. Anything the organism does that is followed by the receipt of food is more likely to be done again whenever the organism is hungry. Negative reinforcers are called aversive in the sense that they are the things organisms turn away from. Page 27. If you assume this means that a reinforcer is something which causes pleasure or pain, you will be wrong, because on page 107, Mr. Skinner declares, There is no important causal connection between the reinforcing effect of a stimulus and the feelings to which it gives rise. What is maximized or minimized, or what is ultimately good or bad, are things not feelings. And men work to achieve them, or to avoid them, not because of the way they feel, but because they are positive or negative reinforcers. Then by what means, or process, do these reinforcers affect man's actions? In the whole of the book, no answer is given. The only social difference between positive and negative reinforcers is the fact that the latter provoke counter-attack or rebellion, and the former do not. Both are means of controlling man's behavior. Productive labor, for example, was once the result of punishment. The slave worked to avoid the consequences of not working. Wages exemplify a different principle. A person is paid when he behaves in a given way so that he will continue to behave in that way. Page 32. From this bit of package dealing, context dropping, and definition by non-essentials, Mr. Skinner slides to the assertion that slave driving and wage paying are both techniques of control. Then to the gigantic equivocation, which underlies most of the others in his book. That every human relationship, every instance of men dealing with one another, is a form of control. You are controlled by the grocer across the street because, if he were not there, you would shop elsewhere. You are controlled by the person who praises you, praise is a positive reinforcer, and by the person who blames you, blame is an aversive reinforcer, etc., etc., etc. Here Mr. Skinner revives the ancient saw to the effect that volition is an illusion, because one is not free if one has reasons for one's actions. And that true volition would consist in acting on whim, a causeless, unaccountable, inexplicable whim exercised in the vacuum, free of any contact with reality. From this, Mr. Skinner's next step is easy. Political freedom, he declares, necessitates the use of aversive reinforcers, i.e., punishment for evil behavior. Since you are not free anyway, but controlled by everyone at all times, why not let specialists control you in a specific way and design for you a world consisting of nothing but positive reinforcers? What kind of world would that be? Here, Mr. Skinner seems to make a Freudian slip. He is surprisingly explicit. 
It should be possible to design a world in which behavior likely to be punished seldom or never occurs. We try to design such a world for those who cannot solve the problem of punishment for themselves, such as babies, retardates, or psychotics. And if it could be done for everyone, much time and energy would be saved. Page 66. There is no reason, he declares, why progress toward a world in which people may be automatically good should be impeded. Page 66. No reason at all, provided you are willing to view yourself as a baby, a retardate, or psychotic. Dignity is Mr. Skinner's odd choice of a designation for what is normally called moral worth. And he disposes of it by asserting that it consists in gaining the admiration of other people. Through a peculiar jumble of examples, which includes unrequited love, heroic deeds, and scientific, i.e., intellectual, achievements, Mr. Skinner labors to convince us that we are likely to admire behavior more as we understand it less. Page 53. And the behavior we admire is the behavior we cannot yet explain. Page 58. It is mere vanity, he asserts, that makes our heroes cling to dignity and resist scientific analysis. Because once their achievements are explained, they will deserve no greater admiration and no greater credit than anyone else. This last is the core, essence, and purpose of his jumbled argument. The rest of the verbiage is merely a haphazard cover. There is a kind of veiled, Subterranean intensity in Mr. Skinner's tired prose whenever he stresses the point that men should be given no credit for their virtues or their achievements. The behavior of a creative genius, my expression, not Mr. Skinner's, is determined by contingencies of reinforcement, just like the behavior of a criminal, and neither of them can help it, and neither should be admired or blamed. Unlike other modern determinists, Mr. Skinner is not concerned primarily with the elimination of blame, but with the elimination of credit. This sort of concern is almost self explanatory, but I find it surprising that Mr. Skinner includes achievement among the roots of moral worth, of dignity. He and I are probably the only two theoreticians who understand, from opposite moral poles, how much depends on the issue. In reason, one would expect that so thorough a determinist as Mr. Skinner would not deal with questions of morality. But his abolition of reason frees him from concern with contradictions. Beyond freedom and dignity is a normative tract, prescribing the actions men ought to take, even though they have no volition, and the motives and beliefs they ought to adopt, even though there are no such things. From the causal observation that ethos and mores refer to the customary practices of a group, pages 112 and 113, Mr. Skinner slides to the assertion that morality is exclusively social, that moral principles are inculcated through socially designed contingencies of reinforcement under which a person is induced to behave for the good of others. Page 112. Then to the notion, smuggled in as an undiscussed absolute, that morality is behavior for the good of others. And then to the following remarkable passage The value or validity of the reinforcers used 
by other people and by organized agencies may be questioned. Why should I seek the admiration or avoid the censure of my fellow men? What can my government or any government really do for me? Can a church actually determine whether I am to be eternally damned or blessed? What is so wonderful about money? Do I need all the things it buys? Why should I study the things set forth in a college catalog? In short, why should I behave for the good of others? Pages 117 and 118. Yes, read that quotation over again. I had to, before I realized what Mr. Skinner means. He means that the asking of such questions is a violation of the good of others because it challenges socially inculcated principles of behavior so that even the pursuit of money or of a college education represents not one's own good, but the good of others. And wider, all principles of long-range action, moral or practical, represent the good of others because all principles are a social product. This is supported by the statements immediately following the above quotation. When the control exercised by others is thus evaded or destroyed, only the personal reinforcers are left. The individual turns to immediate gratification, possibly through sex or drugs. Page 118. Just as altruism is the primeval moral code of all mystics, of spirit or muscle, so this view of an individual's self-interest is their primordial cliché. But Mr. Skinner adds some epistemological explanations of his own. Man, he asserts, is aware of nothing but the immediate moment. He has no capacity to form abstractions, to act by intention, to project the future. And uh, that was the next part of Chapter 13 from Ayn Rand's book called Philosophy, Who Needs It? And uh, this is uh, about B.F. Skinner. He wrote a, uh, several books, and um, this is one of his... Um, uh, first, I think one of the first and, and one of the ones that was most famous that she's talking about here and uh, describing the ridiculousness and the contradictions in it. Uh, well, that's one of the things that you always want to be aware of. Listen for your conscience because your conscience will tell you when an author is contradicting themselves. You'll get this little uh, disquiet feeling. You go, What's that? Something's wrong here. Something's wrong. And if you stop and, and, and analyze it, think about it for a minute, You'll figure it out. You'll figure out, oh, you'll be able to go back, reread a few things, and realize the author is contradicting himself. So uh, that's the importance of this um, particular chapter. Back in a minute.
Thank you, thank you. This is Ron, your host, the only true conservative in the United States. Today, bidding adios to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there and reminding you to be honest, smart, and beautiful, and remember that the left has no authority, no power, and they can't win. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.